Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I am joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the guy who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, I, I made a genie very, very angry this weekend. I, I guess I rubbed him the wrong way. Rubbing the magic line for the genie. That's very clever, Matt. I, I, I adore that. Uh, and up next, the guy who's on the verge of a nervous breakthrough, it's Dana Roach. Uh, based on the curls in my facial hair, my beard comes from the same place where Watsy gets their foils. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Dana or a secret lair fetch land? Those things are exactly the same. Oh, my goodness. This is easily my favorite intro to the podcast ever, you guys. This is delightful. Dana has a $400 mustache. Yes, yes. Excellent. This is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And what we like to do here on the podcast is give all that data a little more context. Guys, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to talk about good stuff and when it could actually not be the best card in your deck. Indeed. There's a lot of uh, good stuff stuff out there in Commander. We want to kind of take an analytical uh, approach to it, see is this actually always as good? Is there a time, for example, that good stuff becomes bad stuff? So that's what we want to talk about today. But before we get to our main topic, we, of course, have to thank our awesome sponsors, Josh LeQuiet and the folks over at the Command Zone team who handle all of the post-production work on our podcast, making it look as spiffy as possible. They do an excellent job, and we can't uh, thank them enough for all of the work that they do. It's just, ah, it's so good. Every time that we see one of these episodes, we're just like always, always so excited to, to see what they've uh, cooked up to provide these amazing images. I just, I can't stop gushing about it. It's really good work, guys. We really appreciate you so much. Uh, but we also want to uh, thank our sponsors for the show as well. Yeah, I would like to thank our sponsor, Card Kingdom, who has one of the deepest buy lists going out there and who's basically ruined the concept of trading magic cards for me because of their inventory <laughs> and turnaround. <laughs> I mean, I, I won't mention the site, but I, I have like 300 finished trades online with people from several years back, and it's easier just to use Card Kingdom. I've just stopped trading cards because of their inventory and how quickly they can get me what I want without looking. Dang, quite quite the. Uh, <laughs> that's, it's that's I mean that's 100 percent true. Yeah, dang. Um, we're also sponsored by TCG Player. They have an inventory of hundreds of thousands of cards as well, and if you want it, TCG Player has it. They also have a portfolio of countless individual sellers that make up um, their kind of selling portfolio. And so regardless of what's happening in the world, no matter how the pandemic gets, there's somebody on TCG Player who will get you and sell you cards. And the, the both those sponsors provide our price links on the website. So when you click on those cards, you can go to whichever of those online retailers you'd like to buy from. And when you buy from them, you support both EDH Rec and the EDH Rec cast. Indeed. And if you do end up using Card Kingdom, you can also visit cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC to help support the show as well. Really awesome stuff. We really love all the folks that are supporting the show, including you, the listeners, too. I don't think we thank you guys enough, but it's really awesome mm -hmm. seeing all the support that you lend to the show here, too. It's been a really, really fantastic experience. All right, guys, let's get into that main topic. We're talking about when good stuff might be bad. But first, I think we need to probably talk about what good stuff even means. Matt, what would you call, quote unquote, good stuff in Commander? What does that mean to you? So are we using it derogatorily or not? Because I know a lot of people on the internet, they like to throw out good stuff as kind of either bad or unoriginal or mm. something that they don't like. So, so in the context of this episode specifically, we're not going to say good stuff 
in a bad sense. We're just going to talk about cards that kind of are individually very, very powerful. It's not, we, we don't mean it in a derogatory way. We don't mean it to uh, knock down people who maybe play some of these cards. We're saying these are cards that don't rely on synergy within the deck, maybe even the commander specifically, to be powerful. We're talking about cards that just on the, you know, the, the card itself by itself is very, very powerful. And it does things that just any deck would want to be doing. Uh, we'll talk about some specific cards and some commanders that might be not may, might not want to be playing those specific cards as well. But basically these cards are going to have a very, very high floor. They're rarely going to be actively bad for you. Yeah, that's a great thing. Like the cards are individually really, really powerful. And so like, I don't want us to like make it sound like, like just you said that it might be an insult or something like that. That's really not the point of this show. We're not talking about like, ooh, these are bad cards. We actually want to see like, maybe if there are times when um, these cards aren't as synergistic, that's the word, especially that you leaned into there that I really, really like. Because um, I don't think that good stuff is necessarily going to be like, oh, this is bad. Like, no, it'll, it has a very high floor. It's always going to provide you with some good value, but it does seem to be at the opposite end of synergy. Um, and I would kind of, I think, describe good stuff in that way. Good stuff is basically, um, like if you have a good stuff deck or something like that, that would be a deck that relies upon the strength of individual cards rather than the synergy between cards within the deck. So that's sort of how it is. It's, um, you know, the individual card versus mm -hmm. a bunch of cards that work in tandem. Yeah, cards that are powerful in absence of other cards in the deck. Right. And, and I think some of this is is very much POV related to like one person's good stuff card to a degree might not be somebody else's. Mm. And, and one thing that makes me say that especially is, is for myself, I tend to be much more um, critical of creatures in terms of being good stuff than I am of like an individual spell, for example. My creatures in my deck all very much have to fit the theme of whatever my deck is doing. I'm a way less concerned about my sorceries or instants doing that. Um, that might not make sense to somebody else, for example, but like for me, yeah. I run nature's lore and, you know, most of my green decks as a way to ramp. I don't run secure tribe elder because that creature for the most part doesn't fit the theme of what my deck is doing. So that's probably entirely a subjective thing that might be meaningless to somebody else. I, I, I'll raise my hand is that doesn't that's not a, a line that I would draw because for me the good stuff feels much more weighted towards spells than towards creatures so that's a funny distinction that we already sure. have going on right here just like you said a good stuff to one person might be a, not a good stuff to, to mm -hmm. someone else um, yeah that's a, a pretty interesting uh, distinction there I think also just something to to point out there, like there are plenty of instances where good stuff cards, quote unquote, and we'll get to a couple of frame examples here in a moment, but there are actually plenty of times when these cards do actually synergize very directly with a commander. So um, one of the first categories that we'll talk about is going to be blue, quote unquote, good stuff cards. Um, and I'm thinking about stuff like Ristic Study or Consecrated Sphinx, which draw you bunches and bunches of cards. Like those are going to be good if you need a bunch of card draw. Like those are just really good cards. And there are plenty of instances where they do synergize very directly with certain commanders. Take the new example of Gavi Nest warden who makes you cat tokens whenever you've drawn your second card each turn ristic study will help you out with getting extra cat tokens each turn and so will consecrated sphinx that's actually really good synergy even though in the context of some other decks we might refer to ristic study or consecrated sphinx as a quote-unquote good stuff card because it is generically very you know providing you a bunch of value regardless of what the commander is actually doing with that card so there are plenty of contexts where these cards are actually doing direct synergy but for the most part and a lot of other decks you can find places where these cards are being run and they are standalone powerful without 
necessarily synergizing with the deck. Like if you played any of those cards in a Damia Sage of Stone list, for example, which doesn't necessarily need as much assistance from Mystic Study or Consecrated Sphinx. Like those are still really good in the deck though. They have a very high floor. They're very, very powerful regardless, but they don't necessarily synergize with that commander. So there's just sort of a distinction that I think is important to draw there. But let's actually get to some of the examples. Let's look at some blue cards because I think blue has a lot of cards that we could classify as good stuff. I just named Ristic Study and Consecrated Sphinx as good stuff cards. Do you think you guys would agree with that uh, Agree with that classification? Absolutely. Um, I, I specifically years ago built a Sphinx tribal deck because I had a Consecrated Sphinx and I wanted to run it in a deck and I felt like it was too good stuff to just run generically in a blue deck I had. So I built a Sphinx tribal deck to run Consecrated Sphinx. And you, sir, are the king of theme as well. <laughs> I know that too. So for you to well, uh, bend to, I, I, to I find am, a, yeah. I mean, I like thematic decks, but like there's levels of that too. When we talk about theme, you know, I like building a thematic deck, but also there's those people that are building their Game of Thrones theme deck or something, which is a whole nother level of theme in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to say that, but there's also people that go to, that take that in a whole different direction, Vorthos wise as well. That's true. It, yeah. You and got to like them, a Sphinx, I'm yeah. playing a good stuff deck. Oh, that's, oh, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Cause you've got Sphinx Tribal or Death of Tribal or a strict enchantress where you run no artifacts, only enchantments. So I know that there are some of those themes too, but that's a good point. There is like another level on top of that. Yeah. Too. So again, the POV thing that you mentioned. Absolutely. You bet. Um, what about other examples of good stuff cards in the blue category though? Any other examples come to mind for you guys? I think the most ubiquitous and what everybody will agree on as far as blue cards go, is going to be Cyclonic Rift. That is kind of the mm. the ultimate good stuff card, quote unquote, uh, when it comes to the commander format. Uh, and if you don't know, if you've kind of been locked <laughs> under, you know, locked in, you know, somewhere away, stuck under a bridge, under a rock even. So Cyclonic Rift is an instant for one and a blue, and it just reads return target non-land permanent you don't control to its owner's hand. And that's all well and good, but the overload where it's six and a blue that returns each non-land permanent you don't control to its owner's hand, that's where it gets extremely powerful and it pretty much goes into any deck running blue kind of just full stop. It's so funny. When we were concocting a list of some examples of these, Cyclonic Rift, I'll admit, was one that I was kind of hesitant to put onto this list because I don't usually, going back to Dana's distinction about like whether he draws, you know, creatures or spells... I think the category of removal spells doesn't usually make my mark of what would constitute a good stuff. For example, um, we won't see Path to Exile and Swords to Plowshares on this list because they are definitely ubiquitous and I would consider format staples, but like they're also just so good that it is going to be helpful regardless. Like that's just something you ought to be playing removal um, in some form or fashion. So I, I don't know, like removal doesn't usually fit the idea of good stuff to me personally, but even with that line in the sand for my particular point of view. Cyclonic Rift is, it definitely feels like a good stuff card precisely because it doesn't matter what your deck is doing. It's right. still it's just never going to wrong. be a good card. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, I think some of this too, again, talking point of view, um, you mentioned removal doesn't feel like it's good stuff. And I tend to agree there versus something like extra turns. Um, you know, you, your deck needs removal for the most part to function. It's really difficult to not have some removal spells in your deck or some board wipes in your deck for it to actually work. Your deck can work just fine without extra turn spells. So things like extra turn spells to me, or maybe extra combat steps, things like that, those tend to feel much more good stuff because they aren't pieces that you just need at a base level to make a deck work. And two of, I think, the biggest examples for me in the category of blue when we're talking about good stuff, Time Stretch and Expropriate really feel to me, even more than Cyclonic Rift, Cyclonic Rift probably, uh, they feel a lot more to me like the um, the 
hallmarks of blue's good stuff uh, suite, I guess, because they can give you extra turns. They can steal permanents from people. Like those things are just powerful, ridiculously good. They're always, it's like getting extra turns, that many extra turns in a row is like, oh goodness, like that's absolutely crazy. Um, but it also is kind of like, you know, is a deck necessarily building around extra turns in, in those ways. Like if you're playing a Planeswalker deck, for example, getting extra activations with extra turns can be very synergistic. But in some mm-hmm. other decks, is you know, not necessarily. It is just like, oh, I get more turns to do more things now. And that doesn't necessarily distinctly synergize with the commander. So those ones really stick out to me in Blue's category for, you know, good stuff stuff. And they are definitely very, very powerful spells when you can cast them. We've lingered a bit on Blue, though. Let's get into some other colors. What do you guys think about Black? Uh, black has some definite ones. Um, the ones that jump out at me, and I, and I think this maybe was a little bit inspiring this episode. Aaron Campbell, I think, made a post on Torment of Hellfire. Was that correct, Joey? On Twitter a few weeks or so ago? Indeed, yeah. Um, and Torment of Hellfire, that's a perfect example, and I think exsanguinate to a little bit lesser of a degree. But, I mean, Torment is an amazing card in any black deck. All it requires is you to have played five lands or so. <laughs> I mean, like, that's it. Like, it, Torment of Hellfire is going to just wreck everybody for the most part if you've just made it to turn five. Yeah, if the game has gone long, then that is the kind of thing yeah. that can totally seal the deal regardless of what the mission of the rest of mm-hmm. your deck has done. I have a mono black Sir Conrad the Grim list, which I really love, and that is a deck that with Cabal Coffers can make a ton of mana, but I specifically have actually had to restrain myself from including cards like Torment of Hailfire in that deck because I want it to be more creature-focused, and it doesn't feel like it's necessarily on theme with all of the death stuff that I want to do. But like, I'm pretty sure that if I were to put that card into my Sir Conrad list, and then I were to cast it where if, you know, X equals seven, I'd win a lot of those games because that's just how powerful that yeah, card is. Yeah, it, that, that card, it, Torment of Hailfire especially is, you can cast it for X equals 10 plus and, and actually win the game. You can cast it, like Dana said, on, on turn five or X equals three or four and just use it as a value play. And it's still going to be a very powerful effect. It's, it's yeah. so crazy how well, good that is. If you wait to turn 10 to cast so you'll win the game, if you cast it on turn five, it's going to enable you to win on turn 10. Yes, yeah, Yeah. I I agree. Uh, One category that I think is very much good stuff just by nature is just Black's tutors. It's got Demonic Mm. Tutor, Vampiric Tutor, even some of the lesser tutors are just very powerful and they kind of turn into whatever the most applicable card is at any given situation, which means that they're always good and it just turns into very generic good stuff. I have actually kind of taken the route that a lot of people have. I take out tutors gradually more the, the, the more I have decks just because it feels very generic and, and I want to be able to win through, you know, through different measures that aren't just me always having the right card at the right time. So yeah, I, I would say just in general, tutors in black are probably the most good stuffy things that they can have. The, my personal rule for tutors I've kind of moved to the last couple of years is um, I don't run tutors in conjunction with a card that's going to be the obvious target every single time. Sure. Um, if there's always a card that you can go get to win the game, I either pull that card out or don't run the tutor that can go get it consistently. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. For me, my relationship with tutors is like, I want to, you know, find my Cabal Coffers, for example. Um, but I totally get it because there's something about tutors does definitively make the decks more, th- there's a bit more homogeneity between games. And mm-hmm. if you include them in all of your decks, then each of those decks might eventually slip into that slightly homogenous feeling where they play the exact same way every time. And, you know, embracing the variance of Commander is one of the things that makes it so much fun. And it's ironic for me to say that because I have like 
five different graveyard decks. Um, <laughs> so I tend to enjoy the same strategy over and over again. I get that I'm a total hypocrite, um, particularly because we put two other cards down here on the list when we want to talk about, quote unquote, good stuff cards for black. And uh, my babies, Grey Merchant of Asphodel and Kokosho, I think that they fall into the uh, the good stuff sort of category a little bit because... I mean, Kokosho is just going to be good regardless of the strategy that you're playing. If it dies, you drain a bunch of life. I mean, that's just powerful. I like to revive it a lot, which I think is synergistic, but it is still just the kind of thing that like, <laughs> yeah, this does make some of the games feel a little bit the same every time if I keep on making these things die. Yeah, yeah I mean, even if you're not doing reanimation stuff, those are both amazing cards in any black deck, in any model yeah. black deck, especially. Yeah, Kokosho is, is good stuff to the point where it's kind of like a red card that we're going to talk about in a little bit where it's good to the point of you only need opponents for it to be good <laughs> yeah right <laughs> that's a really funny definition uh all right let's move from black into green what are some examples that stand out to you guys in green's suite of commander cards what are some good stuff things that green's got well i i guess as the resident green player i'll speak up here and say one that is kind of just crept across everything but seedborn muse is a card that everybody seems to want to put in every single green commander deck and it's a very powerful effect i mean it's it's kind of obvious why being able to untap all of your permanents and have everything available pretty much at any given time because it untaps everything at the beginning of each player's turn. Um, that's pretty dang good. And it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Just having just a ton of mana available at any given time is never going to be bad. And at baseline, it gives your creatures vigilance too, even if you're not necessarily yep. playing with yeah. too many instants. And and that's, I think, another key to it too, um, that there are spaces where a good stuff card can enter into having direct synergy. Like I used to play uh, Crufix God of Horizons, for example, and Seedborn Muse is so powerful in a Crufix deck. It's amazing. There's tons of amazing synergy going on there. But it's also just really good in another green deck too, because it can untap your stuff. It defends you. It lets you respond to things if you've got instants. Like, yeah, it definitely fits that category. There are opportunities for synergy, but even if you're not collecting mana in the ways that Crufix does, Seedborn Muse is still going to provide you a baseline level of value that is really, really sick. I think another two um, examples here, since we're talking about creatures, Avenger of Zendikar and Crater Hoof Behemoth. Hmm, um, interesting. Okay. There, there's almost no situation where, if you're playing green at least, they aren't really, really powerful, and they oftentimes just win games. See, I, I would put Crater Hoof in the same category as probably another card that's getting to be staple category in the Great Henge. It's very mm. good in the typical green deck. Avenger, sure. Avenger Zendikar, I don't think there's any deck that you've put in where it's bad. You just need to play more lands, which every green deck does. Right. Crater Hoof at least requires some sort of board state. You play it on its own and it doesn't, it, it's kind of like a gun that just has a little sign that says bang. It's it. <laughs> nothing really happens. Um, but Avengers Endicar, hundred percent agree. It is totally good stuff because you play it and you keep playing the game and it gets better. Yeah, it's amazing in landfall stuff though. Like you do have opportunities for synergy yeah. there, but you don't necessarily need to if you just want to have a bunch of creatures on board to help defend yourself, even if you're not in a landfall deck. Mm -hmm. And actually, speaking of landfall, I do kind of want to bring up a card that I would posit as being um, potentially good stuff is actually Oracle of Moldaya. Again, amazing in landfall strategies, and its price has been climbing and climbing because that thing has not gotten a reprint and it totally needs mm -hmm. one. But at the same time, it's the kind of card that I would feel, I think, a little bit of pressure. I don't know, maybe it's my own mental, like there's a 
voice in my head saying, oh, this card's so good that you should play it even in a non-landfall deck. And I think that that might actually be a bit of a mistake. Like it is going to provide you value, but I want there to be extra synergy from that value and not just like, oh, I get some extra land drops from the card. It's never going to be bad, but I think I actually do want a little bit more from it. So playing it in a non-landfall deck seems like it might actually be not the most optimal thing that I could be doing if I'm tuning up a deck. Does that make any sense to you guys? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. I've, I've actually taken Oracle out of a couple landfall decks because I think I would rather get those bursts than some of the sustained. And it, that's just personal preference. And it comes down yeah, to- Yeah, boy, like, you the, crazy. That's what? That comes what well, comes down to the, the, the point of view. Like Dana prefers to have nature's lore over secure tri-builder. I would rather just play another ramp spell than an Oracle because I want to be emphasizing- the tokens that I'm doing with my Omnath deck, for example. So replacing that with ramp spells and other token synergies is where I prefer to do it. But I do agree, a lot of people put Oracle just in any green deck, period. Don't 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 listen to Matt, y'all. If you've got an Oracle and you got a landfall deck, that card's amazing. I, Matt's crazy. Matt's absolutely crazy. Um, I'm actually, okay, I want to put one uh, more potential forward as a uh, good stuff card for green, and that's Nyx Bloom Ancient, which triples your mana production. As far as I'm concerned, I think that this is actually also good stuff because you really ought to have a place to put all that mana if you're going to be using this card. Doubling up all of your mana, sorry, tripling up all of your mana is really, really good, but I think you do need a place to put all of it. Otherwise, it is just kind of like, oh yeah, I've got a bunch of mana in my creature deck where I don't have a bunch of like, ah, just feels like, yeah, that's good, but it's not synergistic necessarily. I think that Nyx Bloom Ancient kind of falls into this good stuff category if you don't have something else to help take advantage of its abilities. I can see that for sure. All right, moving from green to red, what are some good stuff standouts for you guys in this color? I mean, it's red, so we'd probably just skip on and go straight to artifacts. <laughs> Such a hater. I'm kidding. Um, you know, the one that jumps out at me is also a relatively new card, and that's Dockside Extortionist. Mm, okay. The, the ability to get treasure tokens for two mana in a multiplayer game. I mean, Dockside Extortionist just generates a crazy amount of value in any red deck because it doesn't care what your deck does. It just cares that people have sat down in chairs somewhere near you. <laughs> or on a webcam, strong. I guess, using strong. the parlance of our times. Goodness. Matt, what do you think? Uh, I would go with Atali Primal Storm. That's kind of like in the Kokusho realm where mm. you just need opponents and it's good. I mean, an Atali, just whenever it attacks, you exile a top card of their library. So the more opponents, the better. And then you can cast any number of those spells without paying their mana cost. So it gets better as, you know, the, the, the decks that you're playing with get better. It's just such a card. The floor is so high on Atali. You need to attack once and you've already gotten all the mana worth that you invested into it. Yeah, that I think that that makes the classification. Two that stand up for me are Insurrection, gaining control of everyone's creatures for a turn and then making them fight their owners is going to be really good just regardless of whether you're playing Spellslinger or if you're more of a creature-based deck, you could totally have that kind of thing that would really ruin everyone's days, almost independent of what the rest of the deck is doing. So I might posit that as a potential good stuff card. Um, but then also Sunbird's Invocation, the enchantment that whenever you cast a spell from your hand, you sort of pseudo cascade off the top of your library for however many, uh, whatever the converted mana cost of that card was. Um, that also kind of strikes me as a potential good stuff uh, card in red as well, because it can just provide you with so much value. It is a good card for sure, um, but it also feels like maybe the value might be independent of what the deck is doing. There isn't necessarily a, a, a lean into synergy in that regard. And I guess going through this, it does kind of strike me that a lot of the cards that we've just mentioned in this category are really the cards that provide a lot of source of card advantage to red, mm -hmm. like Sunbirds or like Atali. These are ones that we've mentioned. Um, and they really address red's problem. And I guess that just kind of makes me wary. Like, 
are these good stuff or are they just good? Like, I don't know. It, the more that we talk about it, the fuzzier the line starts to feel, I guess, is the sensation that's sort of happening. No, I think that's a good point. I think in red, and I think we'll encounter this in white when we get get to white, mm-hmm. a lot of these are just cards that fix the glaring weaknesses in these colors in Commander. Indeed, yeah. Before we get to white, I want to take a quick pit stop at some of the artifacts because I think there's a lot of potential for good stuffness in artifacts. Um, for example, Sensei's Divining Top stands out to me as the kind of card that totally fits in the good stuff category. Sensei's Top is really good if you're taking advantage of it with stuff like fetch lands to reshuffle the top of your deck, but it's also just a really good card even if you're not doing that. And so I totally think that that deserves a mention here too. I, I don't even <laughs> want to talk about Sensei's Divining Top. <laughs> if you're averaging more than two activations per turn cycle, it's it's a good stuff card and we can just ignore <laughs> okay. it. But I mean, the, the reality is for one colorless mana, you could be the worst person at using mm-hmm. Divining Top in the world and it's still probably worth a deck slot and one colorless mana to run it. <laughs> don't don't, don't, don't encourage people, Dana. That's... I'm, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> saying like it's, it's always going to be value. Yeah. What are some other artifacts that maybe stand out to you guys? Well, I mean, we are, you know, Command Zone is doing the editing for the podcast. So we'd don't, be, don't do it. We'd be remiss don't go not there. to say the V word. Vidalcanori. <laughs> oh, no. 100% good stuff. I mean, there, there's not a strategy. <laughs> there's not a deck out there that I've ever seen that would not love to operate at instant speed. And that's exactly what Vidalcanori does. So I'm sorry, Josh. I'm sorry, Jimmy. Vodalkin Orrery is totally a good stuff card. Uh, you said that we weren't using that word as an insult. <laughs> uh, okay, fine. It's totally a very, very high floor card that you can put in any deck for <laughs> incredible effect. It's right. stuff that's good. <laughs> Goodness. Um, one more artifact that I think deserves a mention is probably the Immortal Sun, which does a bunch of things. Sort of feels like the design for the Great Henge was based off of the design for the Immortal Sun because it pumps your creatures, draws you extra cards, reduces the cost of the cards that you cast, and I think it restricts Planeswalker activations. There's a lot of abilities on that thing. Um, but it's also a lot of abilities that are spread in many different directions. So that also kind of feels like maybe a good stuff thing there. Um, and we saved white for last because white, it was kind of difficult to come up with a bunch of white cards that might fit into a good stuff list. What examples do you guys have for white quote unquote good stuff cards? Uh, to me, Sun Titan is the primary example. I think when I think of a, a white good stuff card, um, it, it, it's useful in every deck. I see it in a gazillion decks, regardless what the deck strategy is. I mean, uh, if I see a white deck, I assume it's running Sun Titan and I'm very rarely ever wrong. Hmm, interesting. Matt, any standouts for you? You do play white a whole lot more than Dana and I do, so you might have a bit more expertise in this area. I, I have been known to play some white cards now and then, guys. Yes, you are You are 100% correct. Uh, Smothering Tithe is the most goodest of good stuff. <laughs> there is not a white deck that wouldn't want that. I have to think of very, very specific decks and I can't rack my brain because Smothering Tithe is so good. It's it's insane. I think in the same vein, Teferi's Protection is another one of those cards that just, it does everything that the typical white deck wants to be doing, or at least has a weakness to, and it fills up that weakness. So I just, they're so powerful and they're, they should be ubiquitous. And there's a reason why they are so well known already. Well, I mean, Tithe and Teferi's Protection kind of then make me think, I wonder if part of this definition is, is it a card you would run even in a five color deck? 
And I think mm. Smothering Tithe and Fairy's Protection are absolutely oh, yeah. cards I would run in a five-color deck. That is a really helpful distinction for me there, Dana, because when we were putting lists together and we were trying to brainstorm for this idea, I, again, was resistant on Smothering Tithe and Fairy's Protection because to me, they feel like the kind of cards that just help white keep up with what the rest of the cutlers are doing in this format. And like that doesn't, you know, calling them good stuff doesn't feel right when like Smothering Tithe is just actually scaling really well to the commander format. So it just felt kind of wrong to lump it into the same category as some other stuff. If, like, I, I don't know. It felt weird, but that definition really helps me. It, it makes it feel a lot cleaner to me that like, yeah, I would play this in a, a deck regardless. You know, it isn't just in the context of this being a mono white card or even being a Boros card or even being an Azorius card or anything like that. It really does like, this is the kind of thing that you would intentionally make room for regardless of what your deck is doing, yeah. even in other five color decks. That really helps solidify these in this category for me. I really like that observation. Uh, real quick, before we move on to our classic segment, Challenge the Stats, I want to ask you guys, because we talked about a bunch of cards uh, that might be good stuff, but what about the commanders? What are some commanders that stick out to you as, you know, e most easily falling into the trap of being a good stuff deck, where maybe there isn't as much synergy or as much of a theme to the deck, but the cards themselves are standalone very, very strong? Where would you expect to see many of the cards that we just talked about? Which commanders do you think would be playing the most often? What feels like a good stuff commander to you guys? For me, a good stuff commander is generally one that provides you value in a way that doesn't require you to do anything else with your deck to get that value. Um, so something like Joda, Archmage Eternal, who gives, who lets you just play stuff at reduced cost, but it doesn't need you to have any specific cards in your deck to generate that utility, is one that would fall into that category. And I think Kenrith, um, the Return King, Kenrith's just a really good card that's going to do five really, really useful things, regardless of what your 99 looks like. So like, that's another one. Those are both cards that are going to generate you value, and it doesn't care what your build looks like. Yeah, good stuff does have a connotation with multicoloredness, maybe being four color or five sure. color. An example that came to my mind was Golos Tireless Pilgrim, who can just play a bunch of stuff for free off the top of your deck, and he finds you lands when he enters. You can play a bunch of really big spells like the Time Stretches that we mentioned earlier, and it will definitely be really good in a deck like that. Even if the rest of the deck doesn't have synergistic cohesion or a theme between them, those are standalone very, very powerful cards indeed. Yeah. So I think that five color and maybe even four color stuff too, like a Vile Smasher and Thrasios deck kind of stands out to me as being potentially good stuffy as well, because those commanders are going to reward you regardless of what the spells are doing. You don't need a theme for them to have, you know, for their synergy to awaken basically. Yeah. I, I think if you think Golos is not one of the most generically just I'm going to put some big spells in here and we'll roll the dice. That It's so insane. Golos is to, probably, to me, the most good stuffy, quote-unquote, commander out there. Because, I mean, if even if you look at all the cards that we've talked about so far in this episode, Golos is probably playing all of them. <laughs> the, the, and that's by, by that, uh, you know, scale, uh, Golos falls into that. And, and I 100% agree as well. Partners in general just kind of lend themselves to being generically very powerful. You don't have to do anything very specific. You can just play powerful cards and, and you'll get along just fine. And now that's a reason Dana doesn't like them very much. But at the same time, they they have a very, very high floor for their power level. Yeah, I, I play more partner decks than both of you guys. And I do 
it, I do find that it becomes a struggle to keep, you know, them within a specific theme. I have a Rehan Ishai plus one counters deck, for example. Um, but I do feel tendencies to like, ooh, do I drift into these very naturally powerful cards because they're just so powerful. So it is the kind of thing that I do have to tempt myself back. I'm not sure if that's necessarily a thing about partners or if it is just like having access to multiple colors. But I think the more colors you are, the more it feels like you want to play some of mm -hmm. these really powerful mm -hmm. cards that are independently powerful because it can be more difficult to assemble a theme when there are that many colors which all pull in different directions. That may be one of the reasons for that. And that's, yeah, that's kind of a phenomenon that we've hinted at a few times in the past and in, in previous episodes is the more colors you add, the more staple type cards you're compelled to want to try to yeah. fit into your deck. I mean, if you have a three color deck and you add green, you're going to want to put in Kadama's Reach and Cultivate and Farseek and all those different ramp spells. Or if you add white, you're going to feel compelled to play a couple Wraths and Swords and Path and, and Smothering Tithe. So yeah, the, the more colors you add, the more you kind of lose identity almost because you're, you want to add all these other staples and new colors. Right, which does lean into the potential, you know, as we hinted at the top of the show, when good stuff might become bad stuff. That is something that we are going to discuss here in a moment, because before we get there, we do have to challenge some stats. So let's take a quick break and take a look at the data on EDHREC and see whether we agree with it. Sometimes guards are seeing too much play, sometimes guards are seeing too little play. So let's challenge those stats real quick before we move on. Dana, what is your challenge this week? Um, well, you know, I mentioned good stuff, Commander Kenrith, the Return King. So I'm going to challenge a card that's not showing up in nearly enough Kenrith decks, and that's Braid of Fire. Um, Braid of Fire is an enchantment from back in Cold Snap. It costs one and a red. And it has a cumulative upkeep of add a red to your mana pool. And that's it. That's all it does. So back in the day, when mana burn was a thing, getting a red mana, then two, then three, then four, every successive upkeep, you had to use it for an instant cast spell or instant speed spell or some kind of activated ability, or you took damage from that mana. It was a risky card. Mana burn's gone. So there's really no downside to it. And in Kenrith, a commander that has five different activated abilities, one of which uses red mana, it's an outstanding card. Like the first time it comes back to your upkeep, you can just use that red to make sure all your stuff has haste and trample that turn. You can use it later on to fuel the colorless mana costs of the draw spell portion of that card or the return creatures to play portion of that card or the put counters on things. Um, it's fantastic in Kenrith and it should be in way more than eight of the 1777 decks we have in our database. Just eight? Just eight. Wow. All right. That's very, very low. Criminally low. And also, Dana, I love that you started off with that story by saying back in my day. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day of Mana Burn. I love it. Matt, what's your challenge? Back when this mustache style was cool. <laughs> <laughs> back when you were at the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, so I also have a red card that I would like to challenge. Uh, so if you watched any of our streams lately, uh, we've been experimenting, playing around with different decks and, and getting to play with a bunch of other really fun people in the community. Uh, so Andrew Cummings, friend of the podcast, came on the stream and he played his Akiri Lineslinger deck. So that's one of the Boros partners, but it gets bigger uh, for all the different artifacts that you, you have in the battlefield. So one of those cards that I didn't see in his deck, but I was actually really, really intrigued by uh, is an artifact or is a creature, red creature called Loyal Apprentice. It's one in a red for two one uh, human artificer with haste and has lieutenant. So at the beginning of combat on your turn, if you control your commander, you create a one one colorless thopter creature token with flying. That token gains haste until end of turn. So Loyal Apprentice is only showing up in 31% of a Curie deck so far, which I think is pretty low. The typical Akiri deck, you're not playing Boros because you want to play a long, slow, grindy game. You're playing it because you want to get it over fast. You want to do some 
things with artifacts. So if you're playing a low-to-the-ground commander like a Kiri Lineslinger, Loyal Apprentice comes down very quickly right afterwards and helps develop your board. It makes a Kiri bigger every turn. And also having haste, if you're playing a more equipment-centered version of a Kiri, which you see with Sram's uh, Senior Edificer, you have Stoneforge Mystic, all sorts of different equipment synergies in that deck. Loyal Apprentice can come down after a board wipe, has haste, you put a few equipments on it, and you re you reestablish your board very, very quickly. I think Loyal Apprentice should be seeing play in quite a few more uh, Akiri decks than only 31% out there. Matt, I'll see your Lieutenant card there and raise you one. I really like the Lieutenant cards in a lot of partner decks. Mm -hmm, yes. When you've got two commanders, there's even more chance that you'll be able to have the Lieutenant Clause. So more Lieutenants and partner decks, those are sometimes real sleeper hits for sure. So yeah, totally here for more Lieutenants in those. Uh, let's move on to my challenge now. Mine actually comes from one of our listeners. This is from Sir Axolotl, goes by uh, Dan on Twitter. Dan, this one's for you. You recommended Veilstone Amulet, which is an amazing artifact from Future Sight. Three mana artifact. Whenever you cast a spell, creatures you control can't be the target of spells your opponent's uh, spells or abilities your opponents control this turn. It is only in 556 decks on the website. I use this in my Feather the Redeemed deck so that any cantrippy spell that I play also will protect Feather. But Dan specifically wanted to shout this out for Adelie's the Cinder Wind decks, which also love to play a bunch of cantrips that will pump up all of your wizards. And this is a great way to protect Adelie's and all of your wizards as well. It's a really, really cool artifact from Future Sight and it gives all of your stuff protection. It's really neat. If you're playing a bunch of, you know, quick, easy instant spells this is a great one to protect your army, and it only shows up in 556 decks, which just seems like way too low. So give that one a look. And now, guys, we're going to head back into our episode. We laid the groundwork for what some of these good stuff cards are. We talked about the concept of what it is, but what can make them bad? What is a point at which the good stuff, the standalone stuff, might eventually not be as optimal after all? What are some examples or concepts that kind of illustrate that point for you guys? What stands out? Well, I'm going to speak for Dana here and just say restriction breeds creativity. That's one thing that Mark Rosewater talks about all the time. But Dana just, he, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you like weird themes, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> you like going off the beaten path. Sure. And yeah, it's always interesting to see because when you look at a typical deck that Dana has, and that's one reason I love playing against Dana, you know, in all of our streams, everything that we have, all the games I played against Dana, there's always cards that... I'm pretty sure he like he has one of those weird like I really like when this happens types of uh, gratification moments where I have to reach across the board or just say hey Dana stop what is that card again <laughs> sure <laughs> and and so just seeing people put restrictions on themselves it's it's always really fun to see just it gets them away from some of these generic cards that just happen to go on every other deck but the, being intentional about it is one thing that I really love about uh, companions even because it does put restrictions on you. Yes, you get a payoff for it, but it makes you go outside the box a little bit and you lose access to some cards that otherwise you probably would be 100% putting in your deck. So I have kind of warmed up to companions for commander for 60 card formats. Whole other story because companions <laughs> are doing some, some insane things. But I really like what companions do and just putting restrictions on your decks. And, and from a creativity st point, standpoint, that's always going to be something that I, I look forward to seeing. So basically, the, the good stuff can rob you of the opportunity to be a bit more clever or to find unexpected stuff like you just mentioned. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. And this is really the only format where you can do that and still and still win games. Yeah. Um, you know, you, if, if you roll into modern with your wacky, um, you know, avatar tribal deck, 
that's not going to end well for you at all. <laughs> You're going to have a bad time. Right. Yeah. But like conceivably, you can build a you know decent avatar tribal deck in Commander and sit down and play. And just number one, because of the you know social nature of the format, people maybe don't go as hard as they do in a competitive format. But there's also, it's it's a multiplayer format, so there's more people that can deal with things and have answers, and the games tend to go longer, so you can get away with some strategies that take longer to develop. It, the ability to do that in Commander is a unique thing, and when you don't take advantage of it, at least I myself feel like I'm missing out on what's actually a part of the game that doesn't exist in, in, in any other form of magic. Yeah, I love that. I, I think also I kind of want to go back to something that Matt you had mentioned earlier. If you do, you know, consider any cards staples within a certain color, or if there are good stuff cards that you really can't resist, you want to put these into a deck, say like the Consecrated Sphinxes or the Smothering Tithes of the World. If let's assume that there are like four of those cards per color, which for the record, I think that's a low estimate sure. for like staples in each color, but let's yeah. just imagine that. And then you want to play a three color deck. That's going to be 12 cards that you consider auto includes just within the colors, not even including like Soul Ring or other artifacts. That's like automatically. 12 slots of the roughly 60 cards that you have access to play in your deck, that's a full-on sixth of your deck, if almost not like a fifth of your deck that is being devoted to staple slots, which means it actually does eat into the room that you have to be clever and also to create unique synergies for that deck. So in addition to the potential that a good stuff, uh, you know, patterns of good stuff cards within multiple decks might rob them of their uniqueness, it actually does eat away at room for the deck to do the thing that you want it to do in the first place. If you have too many of those good stuff cards, you don't get to unlock those fun synergies at all if they eat up too much of that space in your deck. Yeah. Yep. I, I remember uh, when I had a Gliss of the Trader deck, I tried really hard to, to put all these random staples in there and I had that exact problem. There was no theme. I wanted to just kind of be like an Eldrazi colorless type of deck, but I was putting all these different staples in there and I had that exact problem where I, I couldn't get a proper identity for the deck fleshed out because there was so much going on and, and there was some specific cards, some narrow cards, but then the rest was kind of fleshed out by those cards that just every other Golgari deck was playing. Yeah, I think too, since these cards are individually powerful, that actually does kind of mean that sometimes if someone answers the individually powerful card, the rest of the deck doesn't help support it as much. It's sort of a, I don't know, in my head, I'm calling this like the cheese stands alone or something like that. That's an odd um, card, Joey. That's silver <laughs> border. Is, is, you yeah. cannot play that card. But for example, if someone counters your Torment of Hailfire, then the entire thing you've done for that turn is totally swept away. Compared to, like, let's say you have eight elves on the battlefield. They each pump each other up by plus one, plus one. Removing any single one of those elves doesn't impact the rest of your board all that much. Like, there is a way in which, you know, if an individual card is powerful, then that means that just taking that individual card away can be a lot more crippling to your deck than if that were to happen to just a more synergistic piece where the cards are supporting each other and interlocking more intricately. Um, so like having those synergies means that no individual piece is the key to disrupting your game plan entirely. Yeah, that's very, very true. And I think the, the kind of inverse of that too is it, it makes your deck less attractive to other people sometimes. I've, I, I've specifically had people that like cast a bribery and look around and say, well, I'm not touching anything in Dana's deck because <laughs> they know the sp because they know the specific pieces in my deck, generally speaking, probably aren't going to work nearly as well outside my deck as they will as somebody else's deck made where they can maybe go find like now my sphinx deck you can go grab consecrated sphinx but like i have a kenneth exalted deck none of those creatures are going to be any good for you to grab with a bribery compared to somebody else who maybe has that sun titan or has that crater hoof behemoth 
Yeah, no, that I, if someone does cast an expropriate, you are perfectly happy saying, yes, take my ardent plea with my exalted right. enchantment. Yeah. That doesn't help you nearly as much. So that's actually a really great point there, too. There's also just one more thing, too, that I think is important to sort of highlight the... Um, the power of synergy, because we've kind of like thrown it around um, just as a term, basically. But like synergy does really like Commander is one of the places where I really love seeing synergy. I love watching, you know, my Rehan and Ishai counters deck bounce counters back and forth between different creatures so that doubling season will quintuple and like forever increase those things to crazy high amounts, which isn't the kind of thing that you always necessarily see um, if all of the cards are individually good. Having those synergies to bounce things back and forth is, is really wonderful to watch those grow. Like if you say... Like, if all of the cards in your deck are four-star cards that are really excellent but standalone cards, and then you play, like, five of them, and they're all four stars, and I guess you've got, like, 20 stars or something. You've got, like, 20 points, and that's really good. That's going to be a very powerful way to play. But if all of the cards in your deck synergize together, even if they're only, like, two-star cards, when you play five of them, you wouldn't be getting, like, 10 points of value. They'd be multiplying. You'd be getting, like, two times two times two times two, and then you'd get, like, 32 points. This metaphor doesn't really work, but in my head it sounds nice. But basically, like, synergy is powerful when it can sometimes eclipse the point of an individually powerful card when all of those yes. things do get to work in tandem. They can be more powerful than a standalone card if the entire deck is built to support them, since they all work together so well. So what my esteemed co-host was trying to say is it's a snowball effect. They build upon yeah, each yeah. other instead of math and, and X's and pluses. <laughs> and, and this yes. last point I, I, I think is is very subjective. Um, but speaking for myself personally, all the really memorable losses I've ever had in Commander almost always come from someone's synergistic deck that's done a really interesting thing and made you kind of do that, oh, reaction. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely lost to plenty of games where someone, you know, just casts Archangel Avacyn and the next turn they cast Avenger of Zendikar, next turn they cast, you know, Crater Hoof and win. Um, but I can't remember any of those games specifically or I can't remember my reaction to them. Whereas people who have built an interesting synergistic deck, I remember a lot of those losses. All right, so to sort of wrap things up, guys, I'm going to give you a challenge. We named a bunch of good stuff cards earlier, but can you think of any specific decks maybe that you have or other decks out there where any of the good stuff cards, actually the floor on them wouldn't be very high, where those cards might actually get in the way of what that deck is trying to do? What are some examples of the cards that we talked about on this episode where the good stuff would actually end up being bad stuff? When would those cards get in the way and not be as good as they tend to be? Dana? Um, so I have a few examples here, and, and we mentioned before I have an Enchantress deck with no artifacts. Um, you know, part of that is me wanting to build on theme and me being obstinate, because Soul Ring's definitely a great card in that deck if I wanted to run it. Um, but by not running artifacts that are that are kind of good stuff cards, just generally useful, I can run cards that hate on artifacts and never have them hit me. I can run things like Stony Silence or Titania's Song that are enchantments that work in the context of my deck and they let me draw cards when I cast them and they shut off other players' artifacts and they don't touch me at all. Nice. So it lets me run hate cards kind of or, or ways to shut down other strategies without hurting myself. Um, Similarly, years ago, uh, for a brief period of time, I had built a Sidri Galvanic Genius deck, and Sidri lets you animate artifacts. And I didn't have any creatures in that deck, in part because I was the plan was to animate artifacts and use them as my as my method of attack. But by not having any creatures aside from Sidri, I could run things that tax creatures or run more board wipes or run things of that nature. And again, 
it didn't hurt me to do that. So I was better off not running a consecrated sphinx and running a draw spell that was in the form of an artifact or just a sorcery or something that didn't have to sit into play because I ran things that hurt creatures. Cool. That's a really great example. I love it. Matt, any specifics from you? So I'm going to go back to the blue cards. And of course, I'm telling people play less blue cards. <laughs> but 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 time stretch and expropriate. Yes, those are insanely powerful cards. Expropriate is is often a game winner. But a lot of times, decks that plan on hard casting them, I don't know if that's really the best use for those. If a lot of times people are casting those two spells in Narset decks or, or they're cheating them into play and, and not paying full price on those spells. So if you're planning on using them fairly, quote unquote, or paying full price and actually hard casting them, that may not be the best use. And there's also a ton of decks out there that also just don't ever plan on getting to eight, nine, 10 mana. If you're talking about, you know, Edric Spymaster of Trest with that typically is the, the flying man tribal one and two mana cost creatures, you probably don't care about getting to, you know, 10 mana because A, you're trying to end the game quickly and B, you're also probably playing, what, 33, 32 lanes. Dana, how many do you play in your, your Edric deck? It's not 32. that many. 32. Yeah. So typically, I would say if you are trying to put expropriate into your Edric Spymaster Trust deck or any very, very low to the ground, uh, Tetsuka Umazawa, for example, you're probably not ever getting to 10, man, 10 mana because you don't want the game to go that long. At that point, you may have already lost because your creatures don't scale well to the end of the game. So if you want to you know, spend nine, 10 mana on all these extra turn spells, that's all well and good. But just remember, are your spells going to actually scale to those extra turns that you get? And if you're playing you know, very low to the ground, very aggressive decks, the answer is probably not. Yeah, interesting stuff there. The example for me also comes up as a really big mana thing. I'm thinking of Torment of Hailfire and Exsanguinate. I probably could run those in every black deck, but I tend not to because I want to focus on creature synergies, you know, bringing back a Grey Merchant of Asphodel, which again is probably a good stuff card, but still it's a lot more fun. And I don't have room for as many non-creature spells. But also I've got a deck like Graven Predator Captain, for example, who sacrifices my creatures, hits really, really hard. And something like a Torment of Hailfire, I feel would just get in the way of that deck because I really do need creatures or... I also tend to use stuff that will steal other people's creatures so that I can sacrifice those creatures and draw cards and then hit people really powerfully. Graven can sometimes one-shot people out of nowhere, and something like Torment of Hailfire, while powerful, would really just get in my way when I'm trying to commit to that very, very fast strategy. Or also, I think you guys had mentioned Kodama's Reach and Cultivate earlier, sort of staple cards for green, but I don't play those in my creature-based graveyardy decks like Marin or stuff like that. Like, there are definitely examples where sometimes these staple cards will really get in your way. Um, and you know what, Matt? Since you had mentioned the V word, the Vidalcan Ori earlier, <laughs> this will be fun to see Josh's reaction to it. Josh, we appreciate everything that you and the Command Zone are doing, but I think that there are examples where Vidalcan Ori gets in the way of your deck too. Like, I'm going to toss it to you guys first because I don't want to draw the ire too much, but like, where are some examples of like when Vidalcan Ori might actually get in your way? I can see Josh editing this podcast right now and puts like the, the scribble like horns on him and the mustache and Joey's missing a tooth all of a sudden. Um, but like I said earlier, yeah, there's not a deck out there that doesn't want to operate at instant speed. It's obviously a very, very powerful card, but also it's, it's part of that, you know, restrictions clause where it makes you get creative with how you're playing around, how you're protecting your board because you aren't always operating at instant speed. You're not playing on the person to your right's turn all the time. So it does kind of require you to, to navigate the game in a completely different way. And, and that's something that, to me, just it's, it's more traditional magic, I guess. I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but it's more 
I don't know. I, I I'm trying to think of a, a a polite way not to draw the ire of Josh. <laughs> I mean, no, but like I I don't know if it gets in your way even so much. But it's a four mana spell that oftentimes is going to use up your entire turn to cast before you get a benefit the following turn. I mean, maybe you'll cast it on turn eight and have mana free, but very often it's going to use up a chunk of your turn, and that's that never feels good. Um, it's super, super useful, and I run it in at least one deck, but I, it's not the kind of card I want to jam in all of my decks because there are just times when I don't want to, like what that deck is doing. Well, use Edric, for an example, since we're talking about a fast deck. I don't want it in that deck because I, there's no situation where I want to use four mana and a chunk of my turn to not have that the, the card be imp- impactful immediately. Or you could just play it next to Seedborn Muse and you're just all handy dandy right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also have decks where I'm just like, ah, I think this might get in the way. I have a Feather deck, for example, and that deck's already basically 60 instants, so I don't necessarily need it there. I think Vidocanori especially flourishes for decks that are especially creature-based. They've got a lot of stuff that would naturally be sorcery speed, but if you've got a lot of instants, then you don't necessarily need it because you've already got that ability. Um, Or decks that have uh, commanders with activated abilities so that they can hold up their mana to do potentially other stuff with that mana, Um, you know, if they want to flash a creature or if not. I think that that's a place where you actually do get extra synergies that prevent it from feeling like just a good stuff card. There is mm-hmm. an extra value there. So I've run it in my Sir Conrad list, for example, because that is a deck that has a lot of creatures and the commander has an activated ability. So I can use that mana or I can cast a creature and I don't feel like I've lost an opportunity on any of those things. I think that that's a place where it flourishes. But there are also, I think, examples where, you know, taking that turn off, like with Feather, it might get in the way. Um, and we hope that the command zone still likes us enough to edit our <laughs> podcast. All right, guys, are there any final thoughts that you have on the idea of good stuff in Commander? Any last punctuation marks that you want to put on uh, this episode, basically? Um, You know, one last card we mentioned a couple times, I will just briefly say this. Ristic Study is annoying. <laughs> it's good in every deck, but don't run it in every deck because you'll be annoying. So I, I've got Ristic Study in one blue deck. It would be good in every deck. I don't run it in all of them. And it's it's not only annoying. I mean, cards also can be annoying because of what they do, but like it's also a little bit annoying to see the same cards. Like one of the beauties of Commander is seeing different stuff from your opponent. And mm. I like to think of it as putting on a show to a degree and you want to give your opponents a different show sometimes. And I think that's a reason to also avoid good stuff is to put on a show. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Again, the more that we've talked about this, it does sort of feel like we're blurring a line between good stuff and just stuff that is good. Um, So I do kind of want to just like remind that like, these are good cards that we're talking about. For sure. And while we've we've interrogated them a lot today, the floor on these cards is still really, really high. So if you are playing them, they're going to provide you with good results. But And some people don't find the act of being creative with deck building interesting. And if you don't find it interesting, you just want to run cards that are good. There's nothing wrong with that. Like it's we've been kind of critical of it, but but that's for ourselves personally and what we want from the game. If that isn't interesting to you, you should not feel bad about playing in the way that you find fun. Especially because stuff like Ristic Study can help enable some of the more out there yeah, strategies sure. because of how powerful they are. Exactly. Well, and I think one thing that we're we're kind of trying to say, maybe to sum up, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is everything in mod- moderation is a good thing, especially when it mm-hmm. comes to magic. You know, yes, there are some cards that are going to help power up your deck. If you you're you're at 98 cards, you can't find two other cards, and I've been in this situation several times. And I look at it and like. Well, I could just put in, you know, a, a triumph of the hordes because I am playing green and I'm playing lots of creatures, and that's just how I just happen to add another insanely powerful card that just happens to be, you know, very, very popular across the format. I've done that several times with all of my decks, and so you know, sometimes it's more, 
I will use staples to help fill out those last three or four slots that I don't already have filled. That's typically how I wind up playing some of these cards that we've talked about. But we're not, we are not by any means saying don't play these cards, be otherwise you're unoriginal. We're saying maybe, you know, take a critical eye and, and be intentional. That's one thing we always say is be intentional about how you're building your deck, what cards you're building in the deck. And is that card that you're putting in, is Cyclonic Rift going to be just removal or is it also going to be a win condition? And most of the time it's yes. That's, that's kind of a silly <laughs> question. But yeah, just make sure whenever you are putting some of these cards in your decks, is this the ideal card or is there something else better that you can be doing despite the card's reputation for being what it should be as, as a staple card? It's funny to me, Matt, that you mentioned that you have instances where you've only got 95 cards and you're looking for five more. I've never had that. Like, I, I have like 195 cards and I have to pair, pair, pair See, down. you guys, like, yeah, the, Joey, you have what we call an imagination and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think I think especially like, you know, a, a good point to end on here is probably that good stuff isn't an insult. Like that's not really interesting for it to be like, oh, it's just a good stuff deck. Really, it's just that good stuff uh, is sort of an opposite of synergy. So like Cyclonic Rift will always be baseline powerful but there are also other examples of cards that will have additional bonuses with other cards that you might be playing in the deck or other cards uh that synergize with the commander like we mentioned consecrated sphinx can be a good stuff card but it actually does have really great synergy with a commander like gavi so you know a good stuff and synergy just interrogating that relationship can be really fun when you're uh building your decks and that's really what we wanted to do today is just like sort of remind out there that like yeah there's a lot of stuff that you can play and some of them are going to feel Staply, but there's also a lot of extra synergy that you can find in spite of those cards or even sometimes because of them. And that's what we want to talk about today. And I, man, it was a lot of fun to go through these too, because these are good cards, y'all. I like talking about good cards. These are just good cards. Anyway, with that, I think what we need to do is call this episode to a close. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on Twitter at Mathibus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S. And you can also find our stream at EDH Retcast on Twitch. Hey, that's changed up. That has changed. It's a big change, so make sure you look out for it. And Dana. Uh, you can find me working as a barkeep in a saloon in 1870 <laughs> with my facial hair or on the cover of a box of Monopoly. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Dana Roach and hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Sorry. Whew, compose yourself. Uh, Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDH Ratcast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDHRX data, maybe a challenge to stats pick that you think we should know about, you can contact us at EDHRecast at gmail.com. Thanks again to Josh LeQuay and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, TCG Player and Card Kingdom. They are really awesome and you can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting cardkingdom.com slash to help show your support for the show. Listeners, what do you think of good stuff? Are we being too harsh on the term? Are there commanders that you can think of that don't like running these staple cards? We would love to hear your thoughts. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH, wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>